1: You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Peter Jensen.
0: Well, I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Peter Jensen, who you will find warm and engaging, even when you're challenged by some of the things that he might have to say. Peter left the profession of school teaching to study theology at Sydney's Moore College in 1966. After a time in the ministry, he added a Doctor of Philosophy from Oxford, to his master of arts from Sydney, a bachelor of divinity from the University of London and Moore College theological degree. He returned to Moore College to teach theology. He then became its principal from 1985 until his election as Archbishop of Sydney in 2001. Christianity and Anglicanism in Sydney have of course had a profound impact on Australia and Peter has been at the heart of that in recent decades. In 2005, he delivered the prestigious Boyer Lectures for the national broadcaster, the ABC, with the title, The Future of Jesus. Since retiring as Archbishop in 2013, Dr Jensen has weighed into many national debates and worked to encourage globally Bible-focused Christianity as a founding member of the Global Anglican Future Conference, or GAFCON. So, Peter, welcome. I'd Thank like you very to much, jump back in time, okay, to 1959. That's a fair while ago now. Uh, well, it is, John. Yes, <laughs> but that that year will be stuck in your mind, and probably yes. many of your generation. Yes. yes. For those who weren't around then, who was Billy Graham, and what impact do you think he had on Australia at that time?
1: Yeah. Okay, uh, I was indeed 15 years old. I was born during the Second World War. Uh, Billy Graham was a an American. Uh, he was Tall, good-looking, charismatic, uh, in the sense of he, he, every eye was upon him, an extraordinary man, uh, a Christian who lived out his faith, uh, I'm glad to say. Someone once described him as arrogantly humble. Uh, <laughs> there was an enemy, described him as a communist newspaper, arrogantly humble. But yes, he was confident, but on the other hand, he was a humble man, and he was a great preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, He was invited to New Zealand and Australia in 1959. He came, he spent four weeks in Melbourne, he spent four weeks in Sydney and elsewhere and uh, with ever increasing crowds of people. Uh, The final meeting in Melbourne uh, filled the cricket ground. Uh, There are 144,000 people at it. Then he came to Sydney and uh, his final meeting here, we had to have two ovals. And uh, 153,000 people, when Sydney was 2 million people, came to hear him. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, if you're writing history of Australia even, you would need to put in the Graham Crusade because of the impact it had. I mean, crime went down, for example. or well, that had all sorts of interesting impacts, uh, those Graham Crusades. Can you just read
0: crime went down? Mm,
1: the number of people... Being charged before magistrates declined for a year or two after his, It went back up again, but for a year or two afterwards, it had a big impact on the whole city, very extraordinary. Uh, and uh, it was at a time the churches in the nineteen fifties were pretty full. Sunday school of a thousand, for example, in some places, and so it it came at that sort of peak time. Uh, the nineteen sixties, a different matter. That's another subject. But in the nineteen fifties. Uh There were many, many churchgoers. And what Billy did, uh, Mr Graham did was... What's the best way of putting it? He turned churchgoers into Christians. That may seem funny. You may think people who go to church are Christians. No, not necessarily. People go to church for all sorts of reasons. But Mr Graham, through his challenge and through, through what he said, I believe blessed by God, Uh, turned people from nominal Christians into full-on Christians.
0: And I take it your attendance at those events had a big impact on you personally?
1: Well, it did, John, yes. We went on the first Sunday, and uh, on the very first Sunday I was 15 years old. My little brother was 13 years old. We were there with our church group. I was a church-going person. And then Mr. Graham spoke. Now, I've described him as good looking, charismatic and all those sort of things, but that wasn't the point. You could only see him from several hundred meters away. He wasn't as though he was up front. Mr. Graham spoke and it wasn't Mr. Graham. He He was preaching from the Bible, clearly, evidently telling us what the Bible said. So that was important. And then secondly, he 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 issued a challenge. He said, what are you going to do about this? Now, we'd heard from the Bible many times in church, but we hadn't had that challenge. And I think when he gave that challenge, I knew that I had to respond to it and do something, make this faith, which was a conventional faith, into a real and personal faith. And so on April the 21st, 1959, at about four o'clock in the afternoon, I committed my life to Jesus, as did my little brother that day.
0: There you go. Hmm. Australia's been considered hard ground for preachers ever since our first chaplain, uh, Richard Johnson. He wrote back uh, to uh, John Newton, uh, who'd been a slave trader, and you know, yes, he was. Uh, wrote "Amazing Grace," still it... the most sung hymn, apparently, in the world today. Mm-hmm. That this was a hard place; no one seemed interested. So there'd be those who'd say Australia's uh, got a strongly secular heritage and those who say it has a Christian heritage. Where do you fall on that question? Well, first
1: of all, Richard Johnson and his wife, Mary, were here. That's the first thing to observe. And we know the first sermon they preached and we know where they preached. it. Very few nations in the world can answer those questions, but we can. Also New Zealand, but that's another story. They know where where their first sermon was preached, who preached it, and what the, what they preached on. Now, I want to say that because the word secular is a it's a word we need to be careful of. I think
0: it's changed uh, its meaning it like has so changed. many other words. It's
1: been it's been garrisoned by a certain way of thinking. But I love the word secular. I'm very glad we live in a secular nation. For example, I believe in this. I believe in secular education, church education, but I believe in secular education. Because the word secular simply means basically uh, of this world. And so you can have uh, secular priests. Well, if the word's a bad word, if it's atheist, how can we have secular priests? It means a priest out in the world. So that's the first thing to say. Uh, And the word that I do, do, do worry about is the word secularist, which is an ideology, an atheistic ideology, which insists that religion is not true. Now, I'm not a secularist, but I do believe I'm glad to be in a secular nation in the sense that no one church dominates this country and that's as it should be. The Church of England is an established church. That's a tragedy for the in church. England. Yeah, mm. the Church of England, in England. Mm. Thank you for that mm. correction. Uh, is a sta- I think that's a tragedy for the church. I think it's a tragedy for the nation. It's good that the church exists comfortably And with good interconnections, excellent. But that a church should be in a dominant position or that the government should be in a dominant position over the church, that's not good. Mm. And so I'm glad we live in a secular country, but it doesn't mean it's not a Christian country. Mm. So from the very beginning, the Christian influence in this country has been profound.
0: Mm. And we need to know that. And you've just, yes, I think that's right. Uh, you've just alluded to the 50s as probably the decade of highest attendance certainly
1: in the last century. In the last century, yes. 19th um, century probably yeah. also, but in the 20th
0: century, the 1950s. Yeah, in yeah. the 1950s. A lot's changed since then. There's been a massive cultural revolution. Yes, there has. What do you think happened? Uh,
1: the pill. <laughs> Sex was invented in 1963, as uh, was it, Philip Larkin said, the poet, uh, now, it's ridiculous in historical uh, narrative to find one thing, like the whole world changed because the Irish left Ireland or something like that. This, this is uh, a little bit oversimple, and so it, it's a far more simple answer that I've just given. But uh, the great, the decade, I would say the decade of the 60s, where the baby boomers came to, uh, into their teenage and later years, To my mind, the decade of the 60s is the crucial decade for cultural change in the 20th century, and so far in the 21st. I think we are living out the the, uh, the 60s. And uh, that was the point at which large numbers of people gave up their nominal Christianity, because I didn't think it was a turning back of people with a genuine faith, as much as people who had simply gone to church as a as a thing to do, and moved away. Uh, Someone's written a book uh, called The Death of Christian Britain, and he says this, 1960s, and he puts it down to the sexual revolution, not only that, but particularly that in the 1960s.
0: Right. Well, the the sexual revolution, as you term it, of course, has turned a lot on its head, and yet we know that It hasn't always produced very happy results.
1: Uh, Already you've uh, reminded me to recommend a couple of books if I can, not written by me, so that's all right. One of them is a book by Stuart Piggan, who's a professional historian, and he has redressed the balance on the impact of Christianity in uh, Australian history. Uh, In Australian history, so often, the churches and Christianity has been written out. There are reasons for this, but it has happened. It's been been written from a secularist <laughs> perspective, but Stewart, in two volumes, uh, has done great work in writing the writing Christianity, with faults as well as with good things, uh, back into the history of our nation where it belongs. If you strip Christianity out of Australian history, you, you or Australian, present Australian life, for that matter, you have done great damage, uh, as well as being not correct. So I would say very important indeed. So that's one book I'd mention. Uh, And the other book I'd mention too is a book about the sexual revolution by a um, psychiatrist from Bristol University, now retired. And he has written a book, his name is Glyn Harrison, and he's written a book called A Better Story. And it's really a contrast between the results of the sexual revolution and um, the Christian story about family, And he is really saying, he says two things, interestingly, that Christians have become the away team. We used to be the home team, we're now the away team. Well, that's all right, away teams win sometimes. Uh, And secondly, he said that the sexual revolution has been a failure. It hasn't succeeded. And that really, if you want to go back and look again at the Christian moral values, they actually produce a better result for sex. Better in bed is really what he's saying.
0: Yeah. Interesting. The, the research does to back that up. Mm. In fact, there's an enormous amount of se- sexual dissatisfaction uh, and, and lack of joy Yeah. and even simple engagement in the act, yes. which people value yes. as a result of the sexual revolution. So it is by no means, we're trying to build a culture now around complete John, sexual
1: freedom. See, here's another point, uh, which I know you're also very much aware of. Since the sixties, of course, when uh, pornography was regarded as okay now, uh, it's very interesting that the people who fought the battle against, uh, censorship and allowed, you know, the, the victory of Lady Chatterley's lover and all that sort of thing, could they have possibly ever been aware of the internet and the pornography of the internet? and the way in which pornography is now seeping into the lives of um, ten-year-olds. These are pretty serious things. And when pornography takes over, sexual satisfaction
0: disappears. So it's not a success. Many would say that the idea of public Christianity violates the concept of the separation of church and state. Now, of course, the separation of church and state is actually a Christian doctrine. That's usually missed. People think, oh no, no, no! This is—we uh, had to get the church out of meddling. Yes. But in fact, as I understand it, it's uh, you know, render under Caesar that which is Caesar, and that which is God. As someone once said. Once said. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and indeed,
1: that—it's interesting, isn't it—the the words of Jesus. Turn the page, it's a very, there's just a simple word. I I get up on Sunday mornings and preach for 30 minutes. Jesus used to speak for about two minutes and change the world. (laughs) He just had that capacity, not surprisingly. So render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's says it. Um, I'm uneasy with the, I'm not uneasy with the idea, but I'm uneasy sometimes with the expression separation of church and state because of the abuse. I think it arose in Christian circles to make sure that the state did not so dominate the church that mm. the church had to do everything that state said in the end, Christians, Christians, owe a loyalty to God first and foremost, because of our loyalty to God, we are very good citizens because it tells us in the Bible to obey our leaders and to submit unless we are asked to do that which is against the word of God. So Christians, a wise state would value churches and value Christians, but it—it's not the state does not run the churches, and even more important, I think the church does not run the state. That's why I say I prefer to live in a secular state. Thank you very much. Yeah,
0: there is an incredibly important role for a secular state, but yes. that is not to say that it should not draw on the wisdom of Or exclude Christian members of that community from involvement and having their say. It must, it
1: must, and furthermore, if you say, "Oh, I'm a secularist," and I or I'm secular, and you, well, that's a philosophy too. So, it, if you chase the Christians out of the out of the arena, all you're doing is you're saying my philosophy is the one that ought to dominate. It's not, you're not saying, oh, everyone needs to be out of the public arena. You're really saying, I am in charge. It's a very bold claim. It's false. So no, I, I think uh, it's not an accident that many of our great leaders have been Christians. Uh, they must have their own conscience, not be told by me. It's not a matter of you know a church leader ringing up and saying, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. But nonetheless bringing the Christian virtue to the business of government is a very positive
0: thing. Humility counts, for example. It's interesting that that's a quality we still admire in an age when we almost raise our kids to be proud of themselves, think of themselves as the centre of their universe, if not the universe. But then when we see it on the stage in public life, we're repelled by people who are self-obsessed and self-serving. We want people who are committed to serving us. Yes. We do recognise the importance of humility. Very much. At least when we look on those who purport to lead us. Then we see it in others. Yeah.
1: You're right, John. Um, one of the things I do, and, and uh, with, I commend it to you as well, is when I talk to a professional, so I talk to a doctor, a veterinary sci- a, a surgeon, a, a policeman, whoever, I say to them, What's going on in the Australian soul? Tell me what your experience is of Australians, of Aussies. What's going on? And write me, a, write me an email. And uh, I've received lots of emails telling me what people are going on. One of the things that particularly doctors tell us about the Australian soul is that we are, in a way that is growing, deeply anxious, mm. deeply anxious, and each generation is more anxious but also a strong sense of entitlement. So doctors say to me that the patient comes in and says, you must, you must fix me. Google said you could, and so forth and so on. But this, it's not just the doctors, but others, talk about this entitlement era. You must do this for me. It's unpleasant. It's unhelpful. And it goes, that is where... The culture and the Christian ethic have parted company. I don't think it's
0: going to work. Uh, well, I, I'm very concerned. Part of the reason we do these conversations is that I don't think it is working, and I think people mm. know it's not. You know, we've had years of what is called progressivism, several decades of it. Yep. We've never seen such atomization, such fracturing, no. such anxiety, you mentioned it, depression, yes. self harm. Yes. You know, I think the challenge, frankly, for People who want to say that they can take our society forward is on what basis do you think we should try more of what we've been playing with because it doesn't seem to be working very well? I think that's fair.
1: Um, it is a complex world and a number of reasons for this. Um, indeed, listening to one of your the people who has appeared in your podcast. Uh, talking about the way in which uh, the teenage generation is now locking themselves in their rooms and just relating to technology. That's new. And even the ones above them don't have the same. So there's a complex... a a number of complex reasons for this. But what you're saying is true. And there's going to be no easy way out. One of the issues, John, I think, and I, I don't know whether you... Agree with me, but is that in when you when you accept the Christian worldview, you are accepting the fact that human beings are failures, that there's evil as well as good in the heart of every person, and that in the end progressivism progressiveness will not work, any form of utopianism will fail, because human beings. Uh, what what we call what I would call sinful we have we have evil within our hearts, and therefore when you hold up this ideal and you're going, we're going to reach the ideal if only you people would stop being naughty, it's foolish.
0: Theodore Roosevelt, yes. Teddy Roosevelt, yes, uh, the uh, Republican president of the United States a bit over a hundred years ago, yes, got to the heart I think. of the Western value system. Yes. And it was directly derived from Christianity. So no person should be above the law. No person should be below it. No. So the king or the prime minister or the wealthy businessman should not be above the law. They should be subject to it just like the people in the middle. Nor, though, should the disadvantaged or the person who's marginalised not be the subject of the same law. Not be allowed to access the same level of justice, to put it another way. Now,
1: that must mean that Teddy read his Bible. Because
0: I came across a verse,
1: I do read my Bible from time to time, but I came across a verse that really astounded me. In fact, I had to read it three times to make sure I was reading it. It ran like this. It's in Exodus, the book of Exodus, where the law is given. And it says, really, you will not favour the poor man in his suit. I thought, he means the rich man. No, it says the poor man. That is to say, your richness or poverty makes no difference. You are under the law and you're not favoured simply because you're poor any more than you're favoured because you're rich. And that's the law. That's what life under the law is and thank God for it. Now, by the way, of course we favour the poor when it comes to generosity and and support and, and caring for the poor. What a wonderful nation we live in where the poor are... Receive such benefits, but when it comes to the law, the fact that you're poor or you're rich or anything else—I th- I think this is what you've said, Teddy roosevelt said, mm. makes no difference.
0: Now we want to tear his statue down.
1: Oh, well, well, we don't. Yes, but... yes, yes. If a statue tearing <clears throat> down again is an indication that people believe that people are good. There's no, there's no statue ever been put up <laughs> of a person who has not been the glory and the scum of the universe and uh, uh, biographies, statues, whatever, they are all going to be uh, of flawed people. And when we pull them down, I can understand motive in some ways, I think I'd like to see the statue of Stalin pulled down, but nonetheless, you say to yourself, yes, but where does it stop? And who is so perfect that we can have their statue there? Well, It comes out of this belief that human beings are actually fundamentally good, except for some people. Not true.
0: There was a very wise commentary by an English commentator, his name escapes me at the moment, in relation to the pulling down of the Rhodes statue. Yes. yes. And this particular individual said, this is an absurd idea. Uh, You want to tell Rhodes a story, good and bad, and to balance it out, a statue of the King of Azula's on the other side of the street and tell his story as well. Then people will come away with an appreciation that actually both had their aspects of their personalities that were, if you like, glorious uh, and aspects that were scum. Both of them. Yes. None of us have a monopoly on it. No.
1: Really John, this is getting back and our discussion has been about the key issue of our age which is what you call anthropology. That is to say, not the this, not this discipline in the university, but the study of human beings. And the question is, who are we? And I think that is the issue of our age. Uh, that the identity, personal, pe- people are deeply worried about who they are. And we have different views from different points of view about who human beings are. Uh, And from my point of view, I have to say, and this is a matter for discussion, but from my point of view, unless you have the view that human beings are infinitely precious, each human being is infinitely precious, that disablement does not change that. Disfigurement does not change that. Even immorality does not change that. Each individual is infinitely precious, but that each individual is deeply flawed as well. Unless that is integral to your understanding of who humans are, I think you will end up in a mess in in, as in, in our society. I think we've made a mistake if we don't recognise both those truths. It comes to forgiveness, among other things. Now, let me give you a parable. Uh, the parable is as follows, that my, it concerns my father, who was a very, very keen golfer. And what I observed as a young man, as a child, really, because he'd go around with him, uh, but when he played on his own, just practising, he would always count every stroke, even if he made an air swing or he hit the ball into the rough and lost it. He counted every stroke. And that's my parable. Unless this nation is made up of people who do the right thing when nobody's looking. Yeah, I see. It will be ungovernable. Yeah. Because one of the mistakes often made, I think by, well, um, one of the mistakes is often made is the belief that somehow the law will fix things. There are two great saviours, that people think are going to save us education and the law. Now, as uh, I think it was GK Chesterton said, if you educate devils, you'll end up with educated devils. Education is a wonderful thing, but it won't save us. If you create clever people, it won't create good people on its own. Now, the other thing is about the law. People think, well, if we pass sufficient laws, we will force people to do the right thing. And again, law matters. That's perfectly true. Uh, and uh, it, it does serve a function. But you cannot ex- so exalt the law as to think that by having laws, you're going to create good people who will keep the law, even when you're not watching the taxation laws of this country i believe are so fast so complicated why because clever people keep breaking them yeah. or getting around them that is absolutely right then you have to make a new one that then you have to make a new right.
0: one yeah it's almost a game we need know, people gaming the system is you know is, is it's become a national uh, uh, sort of art form we need you know, people <clears throat> who like my father
1: pay their taxes b- without trying to
0: Buck the system. and then, then everyone will pay lower taxes.
1: Everyone will pay lower taxes and without having to be checked up on.
0: Mm. So if people won't do what they should do voluntarily, we end up seeking to coerce them. We do. And work. then what's missed is that freedom is lost. And freedom is seriously lost. Yeah.
1: If you want to have a great nation make America great, it's really make America good. Because the goodness... Now, don't forget I'm talking about human beings both being both bad and good, but we do need that which is good to triumph in order for the system, for a
0: democratic system, to work.
1: Well, work otherwise.
0: you yourself actually said in 2005 that true freedom can only be found in a moral society. Furthermore, a moral society can only arise when we understand the truth about human nature, that it contains evil as well as good. So, and you've said it again, really, the more yes. we depart from true morality, doing the right thing by our neighbour yeah. without coercion, no, the more we can expect freedom to decline. And we will have
1: a corrupt society.
0: But, you know, lots of ideologies claim to present a better way forward. So you think of liberalism, Marxism, feminism, conservatism. They'd all claim to be standing for justice and freedom and equality, at least in terms of what they said to their potential voters. Yet they often advocate radically different sorts of societies, uh, liberalism and communism in particular. Why is it that everyone claims to be in favour of justice, freedom, and equality, and yet have very different views on what they might look like? This is a real problem. We don't agree yes. on what these things might look like. Yes. And,
1: um, John, I have to say, I don't know. I will give my opinion for what it's worth, but these are complex issues, again, and we need to be careful of uh, simple, simplistic answers to them. Uh, but it seems to me that if you if you went back far enough into these ideologies, maybe even to Marxism, you will find that they have arisen from a profoundly Christianized society, and that the uh, the choice of a particular virtue or a particular way of of doing things, unfortunately has laid aside certain other things which belong to the Christian society. Uh, but to talk about justice, to talk about freedom, these are Christian ideals. Uh, the same is true of individualism, for example. Uh, the, the power of the individual in Western culture, uh, I believe I'm right in saying, there are authors who say this who are more learned than me, arise from the pages of the New Testament where the, where the individual is cherished. Now, if you take that, that's fine. But if you take that and take it out of its context and don't recognize that the, the individual is cherished, but also the community is cherished, if you take its context away, you will end up with a perverted view of what justice is and what these other things are.
0: Yeah, it relates to what we were talking about earlier. So, but in essence, I've sometimes said to people, look, if you want to pursue the doctrine of the individual, I can say, hooray, I'm glad you recognise me yep. as an individual, indeed. and I'm glad to be an individual, Indeed, but it obliges me to recognise you as an individual. Yes. You're on that side of politics. <laughs> yeah. uh, but yes, indeed. And it, it's it, not a one-way No, indeed. I'm not paramount over other individuals because I'm recognised as an individual. The, uh, it's not a hierarchy. Yeah.
1: in that sense. Mind you, the individual, what we do need to observe, and this is where sometimes uh, an excessive egalitarianism has gotten in the way, where people confuse equality with sameness. And not all, um, th- there are differences between human beings and that needs to be acknowledged, if we want true equality. Uh, but, uh, uh, but I'm agreeing with you. On the other hand, as well as that strong sense of individual, which is characteristic of the, um, the liberal, con- uh, liberal nationals, sorry, I almost said country party. Then uh, is characteristic of that of that philosophy, needs to be balanced with a emphasis on community. Uh, I'm a great believer in trade unions. I'm not sure if they're the trade unions we have, but nonetheless, I'm a great believer in the union movement. I think it's immensely important that uh, people without a great deal of say in the community can get together and have their say. Uh, this uh, essential. If we if we lost the union movement in this country or something like it, we would be in a bad way. So somehow we've got to balance the the importance of the individual, the equal importance of the individual, like what you just said, together with the importance of community, not collectivism. That's community gone wrong, but community. And that brings us back to families, which I know you're really interested
0: in. Well, I am very interested in them. No family, though, can work without something you mentioned a moment ago, forgiveness. Because there will always be mistakes made, the wrong thing done, a moment of selfishness, a moment of flaring, dislike, even hatred. To recover, there has to be the capacity to forgive. And it seems to me that that's largely washed out of our society. I have a theory that it has a to, lot to do with identity politics and this loss of idea that dividing lines between good and bad lie somewhere here, uh, yeah. rather they now lie there. So yeah. if you dare to disagree with me, you must be wrong, um, even under the point where uh, you, know, you can't be forgiven, you're beyond the pale and you need to be cancelled. How do we get on in a society that has lost the concept of deep and true forgiveness? I think the starting point has to be,
1: as far as I'm concerned, with what the Bible tells us about God. Um, I mean, one God who has made everything, all-powerful, all-knowing, a God of complete justice. Thank God, I want a God of justice. But then, astonishingly, a God of forgiveness? How is this possible? And any forgiveness, one of the transformative features of the Christian religion over the years has been the emphasis on forgiveness. When I say, I'm not saying the Christian religion has been faultless or anything like this, we're made up of sinners. But the emphasis on forgiveness arising from what we call grace or love. Now, the Bible does talk about God is just, it also talks about God is love. And out of that love comes the capacity to forgive. Now, without it, given that we are human beings and therefore corrupted, as you rightly say, you can't have a you can't have a school, you can't have a, a party, you can't have a club, and you definitely can't have a family. So we need to think more about forgiveness. We need to be people who will forgive, which requires transformation within. We need to be people who will forgive and we need to people who practice forgiveness. We also need to be people who understand what forgiveness means and entails. Um, And that brings in the other side to it, which is being sorry for what you have done and being willing to own up and to confess what you have done, that you may receive forgiveness. There's a lot to learn here. Uh, When we do marriage guidance courses, I hope we do a lot on this. I mean, most people can work out sex without it being told, but we certainly do need a lot on on forgiveness and sorrow, owning up, which is not the same thing as remorse. So there are things to think about here which would really be essential in an era when families are dissolving, I think we need to confront this issue.
0: Difference between remorse and sorrow. Remorse is, oh dear, I got sprung. It's made a mess of things. Sorrow is, I genuinely regret this. Is that the difference? Yes. The word, the word
1: I would use is repentance, uh, but that may not be understood. But yes, remorse is that that sense you have. Oh, I've been caught out. I've done the wrong thing. Oh, woe is me. I'm a bad man. You know, when conscience comes and 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 slays you, remorse. But that's not the same thing as repentance. That's not the same thing as doing what you need to do about this, of recognising that you really have done the wrong thing and that you have no right to forgiveness. A remorseful person often thinks that they have the right to be forgiven, but no one ever has the right to be forgiven. A repentant person will say, I am not worthy to be re- forgiven. Would you please forgive me? But recognise that I don't deserve to be forgiven. I think that's the difference. And you may live with a remorseful person. You know, they they do something, they get drunk once a week, whatever it is, and Monday morning, they're always remorseful. That's not repentance. Repentance is saying, I'm not going to touch it again and not touching it.
0: Yeah. Shifting gears slightly, I'm troubled by America, which is seen as a very Christian country, much more by Western standards. And yet they're polarised to the levels of hatred and the inability to forgive and to understand and see and share one another's humanity seems to have reached pandemic levels, if you believe the Australian media. Um, There's a very renowned American author by the name of Arthur Brooks who's written a book um, called uh, Love Thy Neighbour. And he argues and he's written this work up, I gather, with a lot of help from some marriage guidance counsellors who know their stuff, that America's anger is not enough to explain things. He said at least when you're angry you're still engaging with others. Yes. But if you combine it with disgust, so I'm angry with you because you disagree, but I'm disgusted by your views, it rapidly spills over into something called contempt. Yes. And when I'm contemptuous of you, well, you're beneath me. I don't, you know, uh, there's no reason why I should, uh, you know, expect, insist that your voice be heard, you can just be scrubbed. You don't matter. Mm. And then you've got no basis upon which to rebuild dialogue. And I wonder how on earth you can ever tackle that. Brooks argues that we've got to learn to turn the other cheek again and it's not impossible because he says, I was the son of liberals in the American sense, lefties, Australians might say, I myself am not a lefty, but my parents loved me and I love them. You can love across these divides. That's his argument. Indeed, yes. But it's not happening anymore. And that's the point he's making. Contempt is the point at which it becomes nearly impossible to rebuild relationships. I like the
1: distinction you've made, John, because um, uh, sometimes anger is the only appropriate response to a situation. If you're not angry... When you first heard about uh, you know the, the slaying of the millions in China, if you're in in under Mao, if you're not angry, there's something wrong with you. You 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 something defective in your conscience that you would not be angry at such a thing. But you need to be careful, and here's where I think your analysis is right: not to turn that anger into somehow contempt and disdain and and go away from me. For the anger that we ought to feel is an anger that reaches out. You see, love gets angry. Love gets angry. You're angry because you love. And yet love is not overcome by anger. And so we need to be able also to reach out in love towards the person for whom we have such anger. Uh, one One of the debates that goes on is, or not a debate actually, people just assume it, one of the things that's happened is that the word tolerance has become terribly yes. important. You know, uh, we must, it's The greatest virtue is tolerance, uh, tolerating each other and so forth. We don't. You've been talking about the way in which people don't tolerate each other. But it is one of the things that uh, people have put very high on the list of values. But, you know, tolerance is not a bad thing. But the, but the real value is love.
0: Yeah. Love your enemies. Not love. easy to do.
1: <laughs> it's not easy to do. That's maybe why tolerance is such an easier thing. It's an easy, cool virtue. Tolerance, love is something that's hard, but absolutely necessary. And when we say it, I think all of us agree.
0: Hard when we, we disagree. I mean, it's, it's easy very to, hard easy to love your own. Hard when you disagree.
1: And we learn it often in families, by the way.
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> which is why one of the reasons why they're important, the socialisation yes. of our children. Yes. And so, if the
1: US is as you describe it, then there are, there, there are real difficulties ahead. Yeah. Uh, because wow. love yeah. of neighbour comes first. Yeah. And to see a Democrat and a Republican together, to see here, I happen to know, I believe that in, the, in our House of Parliament, uh, we have we have people on both sides of Parliament who really get on very well together and work together. This is not? I think that's your experience. Absolutely. So that's what we need. Yes, differences, but not those differences which prevent love from triumphing, forgiveness from being issued and received, and people working together. But
0: that comes from the heart. Mm. To shift again, many people would say that religious freedom is not very important in Australia because we're not a very religious people (laughs) or a religious country, so that Mm. no one much is going to be affected if that liberty declines. I have to say, I don't think that's very well thought through because it goes no. to the issue of freedom of conscience. But yeah. uh, what do you think religious freedom really is and why should non-religious Australians care about it? Oh, Well, the first reason is that,
1: that churches are so important to, us, to, the, to the quality of Australian life, actually. And I remember talking to a uh, gentleman uh, who uh, represents uh, in the Australian parliament uh, he's an atheist, but he said to me that churches. Every he said every uh, every member of Parliament knows that churches are amongst some of the most important groups in their constituency, because churches will stand for something and will reach out to others. The best churches, in a way that others don't, and in a society in which community is disappearing, bowling clubs are closing, golf clubs are closing. Uh, in, a, in an era where community is disappearing, the local church is actually in, even more immensely important. So That's one thing, uh, religious liberty indeed. Uh, of course we need freedom of speech and freedom to speak, uh, freedom to discuss, John. You and I can disagree with each other. Uh, you're not going to cut me out of your will, as far as I know. Uh, <laughs> but disagreeing. Is extraordinarily important. If we're going to find the truth, we have to disagree with each other, and we must be allowed to speak uncomfortable truths. Uh, and uh, uh, and to do so without being trashed, as people are now able to trash us. If we do, if we censor, it's very strange. The old censorship laws were done away with. Now we have new draconian censorship yeah. codes that are worse than anything you ever experienced before. But if that happens, and freedom of speech goes, freedom of religious speech, freedom of all speech goes, uh, we will not, first of all, not have community, but first we won't get to the truth. And I believe there is truth, and we need to get to the truth. Uh, But truth is often arrived at by conversation, not by just mouthing an ideology. So religious religious freedom is very important for the community as a whole, and all of us, whatever our views, need to safeguard. There's another element of this, if I may, um, and that is this. Because we live in an individualist community, and that's okay, it has its strengths, we tend to think of freedom, always the freedom of the individual. Very important, yes. But we need also to think of the freedom of communities, to be communities. So people sometimes say, you're running a Christian school, for example. And people say, well, um, yes, we understand you ought to have a Christian head of the school, but uh, the uh, teachers ought to be selected on their teaching skills, not on their religious convictions. I would say that is because you don't understand what freedom is and what religious freedom is. For we're not talking here about the singular, the individual, we're talking here about the rights of a community, and this is Christian, to act together as a community. In fact, I would say that we ought to have the right to choose a Christian gardener and groundsman, because that person is part of an educational community. The groundsman is also part of the educational community. And that person there could be praying for the children as he observes them round the the grounds. It's, It's through community that that educational process occurs. And if you insist that freedom means the individual rights have to be respected, you will destroy things of huge value in our nation, namely community.
0: And for community to function, there's an interesting aspect of this that sometimes takes a little to get your mind around, I think. You need freedom of association, the right to associate, and for that matter, the right not to associate. Definitely. And the unbelievable thing is that a lot of the people who want to do away with that right wouldn't have you or me as a member of their club or their political society or their circle of friends for all the tea in China. Correct. That's the breathtaking hypocrisy, I think, at the heart of those who would want to disrupt what you have called freedom of, of community. Yeah. And it's not understood.
1: It's not understood because to go back to the something that we were saying a little while ago, the great debates of the age are about human identity. Who yeah. are we? Yeah, And we
0: are social creatures. We are not just individuals. As then uh, we we confront this reality that there's a common view now that religion's had its day, amongst those with megaphones, if I can put it that way in our (laughs) society, and that Christianity is on par with all sorts of other belief systems that are not only antiquated, uh, somehow not harmless, actually bad and even dangerous and harmful. Mm. Um, Not so unusual really down through the ages and in most societies. It's just that we're not used to it in our culture. How do we, though, see the opportunity in the midst of all of this? Because it's so in great confusion. We've touched on that. The great problem for modern progressives is explain uh, this great nirvana that you've been working so hard towards that seems to be more elusive than ever. And there are a lot of people feeling that. They're confused. They're anxious. They're hardly reassured by what they hear from the talking heads on the television at night and on their media channels, social media channels. Where is the opportunity for a lost and confused world that's lacking real narrative and real understanding? And, and it's very obvious that this is real. Um, I simply, uh, exhibit A would be the flocks of young Australians going to hear Jordan Peterson deliver an old-fashioned and tough message uh, about not being the sort of people that you know you ought to be. Yes. Uh, and don't expect an empathy culture to pick up and fix your problems. You need to go and sort yourself out and pull your shoulders back and face who you are. Where's the opportunity? We should never be overcome by the circumstances. I think Dr. Peterson
1: has flourished as a speaker because he has put his finger absolutely on the issue of who we are, and you just said that. Who are we? The identity crisis, particularly amongst younger people, who are we? It's astonishing because we live in this wonderful Society. We have never been better fed. We have, uh, we uh, thanks to Mr. Costello and others, we haven't had a recession for quite a long time <laughs> until now. Uh, who are? But but, at the very time when we have never been better off, we have this crisis of anxiety, and this uh, deep longing to know who I am. Now. It is true to say that uh, we have been finding it particularly hard to send the Christian message out into the babel of noise and surrounds. And indeed, there have been some who have been attempting to stop us doing that. Thank God, not yet. At some level, I blame people like me. Uh, I don't think we have been sufficiently profound in our thinking. I don't think we've been sufficiently eloquent in our speech to draw out the magnificent riches of the Christian inheritance and to demonstrate them to the world. We, In a sense, if you understand what I mean, we need a new Saint Augustine who did that, one of the great thinkers. Certainly I see Christian people living in such a way that they're showing that there is a better story. Certainly, I think the churches which I see are on the whole doing a good job of of demonstrating that there is another way to live in which we care for people who are elderly. Uh, They're all part of the same body, all part of the same team. And the elderly pray for the young and so forth and so on. Certainly, these things are happening. But I think we've got to look at ourselves and say, we have to tell the better story in a way suitable to our age, because I truly think that we have a better story. For example, one of the reasons why people are so anxious, I think, is that we have lost, and I think Jordan Peterson is touching on this, we have lost a sense of meaning and purpose. To my mind, purpose arises, meaning arises from purpose. When you have a purpose in life, you sense meaning You have, you're going to pass an exam. You have a sort of sense of meaning. But now that we've abandoned God, now that God was declared dead by Time magazine in 1967.
0: That's a while ago. It is a while ago. He's been dead for a while. He's been dead
1: for a fair while, but it's not getting any better in the West. It is in other places. I mean, Christianity is going like a rocket in some places in the world. But
0: even yeah. as a percentage, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but even as a percentage of the global population, let alone an absolute number it is. since 1967, it is. The there would be many, religion. many more believers yes. now yes. than there were when yep. he was declared dead. In China, it's among a great irony. I mean,
1: the number of Christians in China, mm-hmm. there were a million Christians in China when the, uh, when the missionaries were thrown out in 1949. We don't know how many there are now, but maybe 40 million, maybe 100 million. We don't know, but it's <laughs> extraordinary. Mm. Now, what the Christian faith gives you is hope. It tells you that there is an end. It tells you what the end is. It tells you that there is something beyond death. It tells you that there is justice in the universe. It tells you that God is love. It gives you a sense of purpose out of which comes a sense of identity. I am a child of God. Unworthy, unworthy though I am, I am a child of God. It tells us that and it gives us a sense of identity and a sense of meaning because if you if you have a goal in mind, you know where you're going, then each day is filled with meaning. Uh, my wife, Christine, and I love a particular verse in the Bible that says um, uh, that, uh, to find and do the good works that God has prepared for you to walk in each day. And we, when we pray, of course, we pray, dear God, help us to find those good works that you've prepared for us to walk in today. So <laughs> we just look out for them, so to speak. Each day is filled with meaning. Because we know we're we're on a voyage. You said the word narrative. And I think we have lost the narrative.
0: Mm.
1: We we have no narrative. Where are we going? What's the point of it all? If you don't have a narrative, you don't have meaning. If you don't have meaning, you don't have identity. You have anxiety. And you have uh, entitlement. And you have deep grief. And fear of death, by the way. Excuse me mentioning the unmentionable.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting... But
1: uh, death is unmentionable. And
0: why? Because we have no hope. Now, as I've listened to you teach and argue and present over the years, uh, not wanting to blow your trumpet too much, but I've always been struck by your great knowledge and intellect and thoughtfulness and clarity too. Now, there'll be listeners who'll be surprised by that because they will belong to that school of thought that says that uh, Christians are people who have left their minds at the door. There'll be others who'll see that as uh, a ridiculous characterization. Um, but the point I just want to draw out for a moment is this. Uh, finding the truth about God surely can't boil down to a simple question of intellect. I mean, some of the most intelligent people I know re- reject totally the idea of the resurrection. Some of the most yeah. intelligent people I've ever met believe passionately that the resurrection happened. True. It's it's a nonsense to say that bright people don't believe it because there are bright people who do. People with much greater minds than me. But the point is that surely it's not just a matter of intellect. I mean, as the scriptures themselves say, there's a certain sort of knowledge that just puffs up. There's another sort of knowledge that uh, that, that builds up or that love builds up. So where does intellect and the mind fit into Christian belief? Mm. But there's a subset to that. What about you know dopey individuals like me who don't have great intellect? Is there any hope for me? And I don't say that you know in some sort of looking for yes. sympathy point yeah. of view. I'm just yes, aware. Yes, John. Yeah, no, there are, you know. Look, yeah. I don't pretend yeah. to be. Yeah. I'm not a rocket yeah. scientist.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and John, it is interesting, isn't it? The Bible never, for example, never well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. is the first and great commandment. And uh, the mind is certainly given an honoured place. Uh, in the Bible. Indeed, the Bible needs an intellectual, uh, needs a brain to read it for a start or to listen to it. Um, and you're right to say, yes, there are many of high intellect who have rejected the Christian faith, but equally there are many of high intellect who have embraced the Christian faith. So both those things are true. Why? How come? Well, because the Christian faith in the end is, is, um, I remember one of the first things I thought about being Christian and so forth was, can you prove God's existence? You know, and you look at the books and you find there are proofs for God's existence, and then there are people who say you can't, and so forth and so on. But it doesn't work like that because our Christianity is about a relationship. It's about a relationship, a relationship with God, who is our Heavenly Father. It's about what all relationships are about, namely disclosure. Uh, I know you because you have unveiled yourself to me. You've, You've revealed yourself to me. You've disclosed yourself to me. And as it is so, you begin to trust each other, or not as the case may be, but you trust each other. You listen to each other. You do things together. Is your intellect involved? Of course. How could it be otherwise? The whole person is involved but it is a relational matter. And I think one of the reasons why people sometimes use their intellects, as I would say as an excuse really is because we don't want to relate to God because we know we think we know that if we relate to God, he'll take our freedoms away and we want to be free. And so therefore it's not so much that it's impossible to leave God because of intellect. It's rather impossible to believe in God who demands your worship and who seeks to relate to you as God. So intellect, yeah. I've had my doubts. I've been through, when I was at Theological College, I, in the second year at Theological College, I went through a great period of doubt, intellectual doubt. Um, and no one panicked. That was good. And gradually I began to see, ah. Oh, That's how the pieces fit together. And uh, you can't live in this world without doubts. I do. Um, But on the other hand, I also live in a world in which I know God because he has made himself known to me and he is the one I trust more than anyone else in the whole world.
0: So talking of those doubts, I mean, the reality is you don't mind me saying so, you've now lived through quite a bit, through the 60s, and you talk about it earlier, through the 70s. You were actually educated in some of the, the great, to go back to that word, secular institutions like mm-hmm. Sydney University mm-hmm. and uh, Oxford. You maintained your faith through all of that. So why today, sitting here, do you still say, I am a Christian? Yeah.
1: Of course, there are some who aren't, of course. Some people I started the race with... The fallen away. Others have joined. But... John, I think I would say this, that I'm not a Christian because I'm a good person. On the contrary, I'm a Christian because I'm not a good person. though I know I need forgiveness. I'm not a Christian because I'm a highly intellectual person, which you've overstated, though I do have brains and I have been to these great universities, and I have read all the other books. I've read the books against, as well as the books for. Bertrand Russell, Why I'm Not a Christian. In the end, I'm a Christian because um, of Jesus Christ. I've read his story. I've read it in the four gospels. I keep reading it. I can find no other explanation for him and for what he did and said than that he is who he said he was, which is the Son of God come amongst us to save us, to forgive us. There's a great, there's an extraordinary moment when he is crucified, you know. Fortunately, the Bible doesn't really describe crucifixion. unspeakable a horror unspeakable and jesus says as he's being crucified father he prays to his god father forgive them he prays for the forgiveness of those who have nailed him up stripped him off and left him to the birds well there's another moment when uh, a leper comes uh, Lepers were treated. Stay away, stay away, stay away. This leper arrives and he asks for healing from Jesus. And just incidentally, incidentally, the story goes Jesus looks at him and touches him. He did what no one else would do, he touched the leper. And that in a million other ways, as I read the gospel, I'm reading about a real man. I'm reading things that he really said. I'm reading things he really did. He wasn't mad. He wasn't evil. He is the son of God. And that's, I I just trust him.
0: Trust incredibly powerful thing. Mm -hmm. Peter, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you indeed for being so incredibly open and thank you for all of the challenging of so many of us uh, that you've done uh, in order that we might think more clearly and arrive at more sensible places. John, thank you for having
1: me here. It's been much appreciated and I tune in to these uh, wonderful podcasts and I just hope and pray that they'll continue and continue to be such a huge blessing to many people. Thank you. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.
0: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time,